0: Get this mic right. You know me so well. It's a little higher. We got it worked out. Good. So, sound okay in the back? Good. I want to thank uh, everybody for putting this on. Uh, I love this place, and I love being here. So, thanks for coming. Uh, It's especially amazing to, to read and just interact with and hang out with Vivi Francis, we've read together a few times now, and it's getting better and better and more fun. It's nice to see Matthew here as well. Um, So we hope that we can bring some of our dialogue to this already dialogue-rich place. Uh, What I want to do is read tonight short nonfiction pieces, and what I thought I would do is tell you quickly about this book that just came out last year, read one piece from it, And then I'm going to move into this next project. The book uh, that I just recently wrote called Beginner's Guide to a Head-on Collision is a book about surviving a head-on collision, and my family was in the accident seven years ago. And the book's kind of about, it's very much about the accident, the immediate aftermath, the recovery process, and then kind of the recovery of the recovery in a way. And I think people who've gone through experiences like this and know what that is like and or been around people who've gone through it. And in our case, our family went through it together. And I wrote the book in a, in a hybrid way. There's prose pieces, there are lyric poems, these kind of fake, hor- mean-spirited, self-hating uh, horoscopes. There are um, prose poems. And the prose poems began to be very much the first poems that I, be- that I was writing after a couple years, as you might imagine, of being her- kind of a hermit. Um, learning how to walk again, moving around, and just kind of finding a way to get back in the world. And when I was finished with the book, I wanted to keep writing those kind of prose poems. And I realized they're not even prose poems in my mind, whatever they are. They're more like dispatches or encounters, engagements. And they, be, I began to, uh, in this new project, try to push myself into new places, get more into the, out into the world again, engage in more kind of more conversations, get into areas and places maybe I'd be uncomfortable with and want to explore. and uh, But I'll read before I go into those, I'll just quickly read you one of the short prose poems called Changes. The first man crosses over the road in plenty of time, a brief head turn to gauge distance and speed. The second man, not looking up, rushes awkwardly into the street just as I approach causing me to tap my brakes just enough to shoot a small jolt of adrenaline into my body. I turn my head to watch him flushing in anger surprised to see he's lugging a full-grown raccoon on a pole hanging by its neck caught in some sort of noose. The raccoon is twisting back into the man's body Both of them disappear into the quicksilver of sunlight gleaming off the corrugated metal warehouse and the river behind. The next 10 minutes spent navigating on and off blaring light made trickier by the narrow road, the approaching trucks, and the small frozen puddles laid out like mats at every driveway turn off side road. Just enough heat seeps in to keep me warm but awake, awake enough to spot coming upon a turn Another man, tightrope walking along the railroad bridge, there he is, hooded, bent forward by heavy backpack, suspended over me like an angel, backlit by sunlight, his breath puffing out of him in little train engine puffs. Then he's gone and I'm through the arches and for a moment I lose track of what just exactly I am doing and where I might be headed. What I found beginning to write these pieces, was that as I was moving into a PTSD kind of post-recovery post place of suddenly triggers were everywhere, driving was difficult, unsure of why those things were happening so far out since, from the accident. As I got through that, my family got through that, we realized that this, the country was kind of in a PTS trigger mode, and, and we have been for a couple years now. And so this book is kind of about the smaller story of coming out of PTSD and the larger story of moving into a ptsd cultural moment and it's a and the questions of this book are kind of what's my identity how do i uh, step in and out of boxes that i choose or, or seem to have been chosen for me how to get into the conversation that is necessary to move past this kind of whatever this place we're in right now and so the dispatch the encounter seemed to me to be the way to move forward as a a writer. So the first piece here, these are all one to two and a half pages, and I'm gonna read for about 15 minutes. Useless. Two middle school girls man the ticket table in front of the gym doors. I've paid with a 20, but they only have singles. Dodgeball night. Someone's mom pats Avery's head as she walks inside. He follows her in. One girl struggles to count the bills, so the other tasks so the other takes over the task. You're useless, I tease. The girl's face crumples in shame for half a second, and then recomposes, replaced by a stoic frown. I've blown it. Useless is what parents say to children, teachers to students, boss to worker, coach to player. You can't catch, can't count, can't spell, can't do anything right. I'm just joking, I say, hand out, leaning forward, I'm the one who's useless. I try again. Really, a kid like that all the time. Avery has come back looking for me. Isn't that right? I tease you all the time. Never one to comply for compliance sake, Avery shakes his head. No, you don't. The mom has come back over, a worried look blooming. A dozen bills are handed back. I stuff two singles in a tip box as hush money and limp inside. White men in trucks. As um, Gary said, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, which is kind of, I always call Asheville the Burlington of the South. And it's definitely um, a mountain place and it's also a very Southern place. And so white men in trucks is a phenomenon. What is it about them that shoots a brief goose of fear into the bloodstream? Is it imminent threat sounding in the revved engine? Derision caught in side view mirror, snapshot? Or plain old disdain drumming its fingers on the driver's side door, a little of each? One barrels past as you walk the dogs through your suburban neighborhood, not slowing or moving over. Another swerves around the bend, meeting your upraised hands with a jutting middle finger. Just yesterday, a man steps around you in line and interrupts the conversation you're having with an acquaintance who is showing you a photo of his five-year-old boy holding up a large fish caught in one of the Biltmore ponds. The man behind says, that a bream? He's got a smile on his face that you read as hostile. He wants you gone. But the fish, the father ignores the man, finishing his sentence about the peaceful lake and how quiet it is out there with his boy. Almost mystical, he says. The man interrupts again, smile getting bigger. Hey, Mike, that a bream your boy's holding? Mike turns to his friend and busts into an equally large smile. Hell no, he drawls, and starts listing all the fish his boy has or could have caught. You don't fish, so you don't follow, nor can you make clear sense of the quick-fire exchange. The two men have fallen into a bravado-fueled, friendly back and forth. It's as if they're flashing each other's signs or showing each other their good old boy badges. You feel as though you are being erased from the moment, no trespassing signs staked at your feet. The men chat and laugh in the corner as you slip back in line. Later at dusk, one more truck appears. It slows to a crawl and follows you up the street. Enough's enough. You turn to face your nemesis who has rolled down the window. What do you want? The man smiles, remains silent. There's power in the comfort with silence. How old is that dog of yours? He asks, leaning out the window. He's talking about the lab, just a puppy, bounding over and standing up into the man's arms. He laughs, rubs the dog's head. I just put my old gal down last week, just about killed me. Think I might get me a new one. The look in his eyes is pure sadness, pure love. Selma. I was at a showing of Selma with a friend, only a few moments in, We'd just watched King accept the Nobel Peace Prize. And now four girls were walking down the steps of a church, deep inside their lives, cradled inside the building, walking and talking and laughing. And my friend leaned over and whispered, you know what's going to happen next, aren't you? And I wasn't thinking, but then I knew in a split second that there were the girls. In, these were the girls in Birmingham. And I averted my eyes just as the bomb went off. And when I opened them again, windows were exploding, and the girls were thrown in the air over the banister and as the camera lingered on the carnage the dead bodies I started to cry devastated by the act but also out of relief for my friend had saved me another blind crash inside the head one more shell shock moment averted whenever king sat next to a window I winced and waited for a brick or a Molotov cocktail to come flying through the glass how can anyone live with that much death hovering outside Every time a protester got slammed to the ground by a cop or a man or woman was punched in the face or knocked into a wall or billy clubbed or shot in the stomach, I felt the shocks in my body. Was meant to make some kind of sense of that violence, the hatred enacted, to feel it in my bones, and I received it without remorse. When the marchers were met on the bridge with a wall of hate and vitriol, my friend and I held hands and took the beatings full on, accepting passively each rage-filled act. Neither of us cared to step back from fear. And I don't want my own shell shock to keep me from the painful truths of our world. Isn't that always the fight? To stay awake, to be courageous, not to slip into sleepwalking, not to shut down into overwhelm or boredom or abject fear. I kept thinking, I'm not the man I was. I am not the man I was. And I usually mean that I am not, I'm less of a man, but times when it's most definitely more not to slip into self-pity or nostalgia or delusion, not to let fatigue and depression and dread bring me down, not to let overload and triggers shut me down, to walk up onto that bridge hand in hand or sit at my desk by the window and face down anything that threatens to bring us down. Water Park. The sudden downpour that cleared the decks has packed up and moved on. The sun blares down. The speakers blast counting crows as Mr. Jones. Families troll past in swim trunks. Teens move in small packs on the lookout for a brand of adventure they will not find here. The young lifeguard is moving so deeply inside a bored loop, eyes scanning the empty pool in a prescribed route, I worry about his mental health. A job's a job, I know. A man behind the pizza counter, white, laughs with two women, white and Asian. He has drawn a picture of the Asian woman who says, the eyes are too small. The other woman tells the man, if you draw me, I'll slap you. When the first woman turns to a task, the man alters her drawing, showing it to his coworker. You're mean, she says. He balls it up and throws it away, laughing. Earlier this morning, the shuttles were full of employees and the halls were empty. Now we're in full swing. I wait at the bar for an overpriced beer. The boys have joined the line for the vortex, egging each other past their cartoon fear. My boy says, I heard if you don't weigh enough, you'll get stuck. My friend laughs, that's okay, there's a hatch. White Dad Shoes. Oh my God. My hip Italian sneakers purchased recently in Montreal have become, in the minds of my 14-year-old boy and his best friend, white dad shoes. I've become white dad. Avery's latest roasting insult, you're such a white dad. It doesn't help that a room full of adults have asked about my cool shoes. I've been nailed. I try to tease back by calling the boys white dad. Phoenix, I can't be white dad, I'm black. Me, but you're acting like a white dad. They shake their heads and walk back upstairs. I lather on sunscreen before we go tubing and I get stuck in my beard. Avery, you look like a demon with your red eyes and that sunscreen on your face. I moan at him like a ghoul and chase him into the water. Later, he comes out of his room with a complete mask of sunscreen. The boys explode in laughter at his parade of white face. Later, on the way to the movies, I bring it up again. I am one of the least white white dads you know and the boys look at each other with deadpan eyes, then return to their games. That's just what a white dad would say. (laughs) I pump up the volume on Stevie Wonder's Boogie On, Reggae Woman. Two more. Three more, sorry. One of them's very short. Gospel. Just landed at JFK about to head into the city for the first time in over a year. Instead of flagging a cab or jumping into a van, I follow the signs to the air train, three stops to the A-Line, joining a huddle of men and women on the cold and gray platform, wind shuttling in. What about the cold embrace speaks to my bones? What about this congress of strangers? The whole ride, letting the wider world in, not looking up, just listening to the bodies around me settle into the silence, old glances, Only glances allowed, brief encounters with faces, train cars slowly filling, dipping down into the long, long, dark tunnel. A young man enters the car and introduces himself. I'm not here to bang you or bore you, he sings songs. I'm here to sing to you, brothers and sisters. Of course, no one looks up, nothing spectacular in this scenario, though the man beside me leans down and opens his stance a notch, turns his face to hear our singer nodding as he climbs the verbal steps up onto his soapbox. I don't do R&B, I don't do rap. All I see for now are his red sneakers, his nervous strut back and forth. People, I sing gospel. The train pushes further through Queens, This young man's flock heads into their days, wrapped up in headphones and handhelds, but I can feel the car tune into the sweet singing. There is no friend like Jesus, he belts. The congregant beside me nods a fraction. We're approaching a stop. The song is through. There's a moment to ad lib, so a brief bio gets offered up. I'm only 26. I've banged and boozed. I've seen it all. My seatmate slips a few coins into the man's hand as he offers up a little fist bump of thank you. A tired-looking trans woman stares at me as I watch the show. I've been shot three times. Someone laughs out loud at the back of the car. This makes our young pastor smile when he turns to engage the commentary. I'd wanted to give him a dollar. I wanted to offer up thank you of my own. But I stop myself, not wanting to make my first overt act in the city be reaching for bills in a tight front pocket. He drifts off to his next stage. My seatmate gets off at the next stop. The car fills with a new surge, and in the next length of time, I give my thanks by humming quietly in my body, letting as much as I can in, offering praise in this daily gathering of bodies, faces, lives, glances, mute stares. I'm here to sing, the young man had said. It makes me want to cry. I lower my head instead and fall deeper into my seat, letting the woman beside me settle into my shoulder. Soon, we'll be under the river and I'll step out into the great canyon of wind and light. But for now, here, I will quietly sing into my own breath. Another New York piece, Blue Nude. I don't know if you guys knew, I didn't, that there are four blue nudes. Kind of blew me away, Matisse. There's a jazz to moving through a day in Manhattan An openness to improvisation required. Stepping into the street, finger raised for the next top-lit taxi, descending into subway tunnels, rushing up to the next car, slipping in before the doors jerk close, sidestepping a crowd of bundled up workadays or passing into an impromptu circus scene at the mouth of Union Square, or lending an arm to the old woman stuck at the curb, made immobile by the ice. Deep into the last weekend of Matisse's cutouts at MoMA, The crowd converges in a room and circles the walls filled with playful collage, taking in all the bright color and whimsical shape, the flowing lines, moving in and out of each other's sight lines, mumbling sorry and no problem. I position myself to get some face time with one of the four blue nudes, my eye moving back and forth along the figures, taking a clandestine snap with my phone, bending down to read about their genesis. Matisse's assistant Lydia says, a small thing, blue on white. That was the start. In the last room, everyone seems high on joy, laughing and nearly dancing with one another. We've been showered with such grace and play, are reminded what hard work and perseverance in the face of death can accomplish. Walking out into the winter gray, we find a bar to rest in, choosing a drink and a few appetizers, letting our little table get lost in the group babble. Going back through the show together, one of us, an artist himself, shakes his head and says, He was just an old man in bed with a pair of scissors. I fucking hate that guy. And I'll end in another museum. This is the Andover High School Museum, which is an incredible photography museum, among other things. They got some money. And it was a Lorna Simpson retrospective. So this piece is after her incredible body of work. And it's for Lady V who says she doesn't see her face in any of my collages. When I walk in, an invisible docent stills my breath with a small hand gesture, reaches in, winds up my heart, then lets me go. All wobbly spinning, hundreds of small snapshots pinned on the walls in computer code mosaic. Vintage pinups next to newly staged copies repeated across the walls, each one a wink. I think, you've wanted just this exact thing. I think, here are all your faces, each of your own thousand pieces. Piano jazz seeps out on an adjacent room, elegant, geometric. I dance in its parquet, silent stroll, stutter step, beauty with plaited braids on bed, knees up, lady of the skin in lamplight, uplifted chin. Soltress reclining, sipping a martini, sexpot draped over a sedan circa 1957, ebony pinup, hair piled, legs slightly spread on day bed. I think this is what you need, a room like this to walk into for every time you forget. I think this is what you need to remind you, you are beautiful. This gallery of women just for you, ready and willing, each pose a possibility, framing so, just so you can look straight into all your own faces. Thank
1: you. Thanks, Sebastian, that was wonderful. Um, It's a great pleasure for me to introduce Fivey Francis. Fivey is the author of three collections of poetry, Blue Tail Fly, Horse in the Dark, and most recently, Forest Primeval, which won the 2017 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. She is hard at work on her fourth book, The Shared World, which will be published by Northwestern University Press. Originally from Texas, Vivey has lived in Detroit, North Carolina, and now Hanover, New Hampshire, where she lives with her husband, the poet Matthew Olsman, who is also here tonight, and where she teaches at Dartmouth College. Vivey is a longtime editor of the journal Callaloo and teaches in their creative writing workshops. A poet who is often described as visionary, Vivey serves as a guide and mentor to many, emphasizing humanity in each of her interactions and unity between the life of a poet and their poems. I met Vivie when she was the visiting writer at North Carolina State University, and I had recently graduated from the MFA program there. Shortly after I began working as her assistant, I realized this was someone I could learn not only the inner workings of the poetry world from, but also how to live a life that was rich and full and deep. Vivie is full of insight. She's a person who makes connections with many, but who also challenges them through her poems and as a person. She opens the door for conversations to take place that people are not used to having and in this way pushes forward humanity. She calls for a world of nuances and complexity, a world that resists reductions. Humans are not meant to be reduced. We're too gorgeous and all are complications she says, she celebrates. She recognizes and calls forth possibility, saying, I love people having their own agency. It is the best way to see our own beauty and measure. And to me, the American experience works by our broad measures, not our reductiveness. In her poem, White Mountain, she writes, how could that cry be wind alone? Something has snapped in two. Something has been lost that won't return in this life. I want to find the source. Vivi searches, seeks, and questions, often questioning accepted modes of authority and interpretations. Hers is a voice that is unique, direct, complex, and captivating. Please join me in welcoming Vivi Francis. Thanks.
2: Can you hear me in the back? Yes? Okay. The Shared World. Into the bow of your ear, I whispered the secret story. Now you can't sleep either. Consider it part of your own memory. It connects our childhoods that would have otherwise never crossed. I fell down, your knee was scraped. I stuffed the yellow cake into my mouth and your stomach cramped. When you were abandoned, grief filled my well, the private ravages of our spent youth and adulthood now implicitly intimate. You want to pull me to you because I have already softened your sharp elbows. I might have sucked the lobe of your ear. Though so many have, you might not recognize me there. The pressure of your fingers in my shoulder leaves an Orphic impression. As if in need, I had turned to touch myself. Insomniacs, the grip of the night frees us from the slept through day and its demands. Once you know, you can't unknow. So we ruminate on literature and the gods and continually seek the usia of the emptied jug or the ever-luminous cherry at the bottom of a looking glass. Not pretentious in the slightest, we need no wine, but are eager to get on with it and will take in or do whatever forwards this living, this knotty conversation, keeping us tied, kite to string, present to past, arrow to quiver. Taking It for Gabby Calvacresi and Jen Grotz. I never remember the knuckles, though his hand was bare, though their hands were bare. I remember the impressions left on this skin, the wilting and welting. I don't remember the sound, not one smack, I remember the falls, myself falling to the floor or sidewalk or against the brick wall, my head met after a push. There were many pushes, girls pushed, but I punched. Pulled one down by her hair and kneed her as my own head bled. Girls didn't punch until high school, but I had always punched. What kind of girl are you, my father asked. The kind who wants to live, I said. And I did want to, until I didn't anymore. But I wanted the leaving to be on my own terms, so I hit my father back. He owned me like any good country father. He waited for a husband to tame what he couldn't corral, to throw a rope like fingers round a neck. And when I missed a boy, finger holds, I remember those, and me making a fist wrongly and punching, and I didn't mean to miss, but to hit that line below the belly, the belt line. Went to broke me in the snow my first year north. I'm still afraid to say his name. I wore shoes too thin for the weather. Who had ever seen such snow and had a Georgia lilt like molasses on a sore throat, sugared, raw, and he hated the sound of it. He was black and I was black and I was so happy to be in Detroit. And he aimed for my heart-shaped mouth, my gap teeth, my too sweet tongue. I felt the juvenile weight of him above me like snow after dark, falling steady and hard. He said, I'm gonna teach you to talk regular. And I stopped speaking at all. I kept my swollen mouth shut and a straight razor in my math book and dreamt of a bat to crack against his chest. A woman like me, with soft hands, not hands of the field like my grandmother, but hands meant to stroke and soothe, needs a weapon. So I studied the art of war and watched boxing and where else was all this rage to go? Is this too dramatic? Find another story. Find a lie. In love, body after body fell beneath my own, though my own was broken. And I made love like a sea creature, fluid as if boneless, though my bones would rattle if not for this fat I cherish, wouldn't you? and how I grew to love the heavyweights, myself with one in the ring. Imagine him punching me and punching me again, saying, I'm sorry, so sorry to have to love you this way. i leaving the mountains and coming back to the city I thought I left for good. Without the backdrop of leaves and scat, the possum playing possum, its mate the same. Without the tip of the road, its black pitch wound like a widow's wail through the wet trees. Consider the undergrowth and what hides there, the brown bristle of the hedge, the singular call of a bird, its beak red-tipped, its feathers black as a pool in the moss without the reflection of a dog's tongue in the water, or the stone lobbed over the surface in order to see the surface ripple like a skirt being pulled up. There's only the city, present in the face like a shout, like a lie yelled as if to assert its veracity, but everyone hearing it knows it's just not true. I re-enter the city of Detroit still standing Its back turned to the forest of bears and bluing brush and the inedible red fruit, the berries hung just at the mouth's reach that beckon easily as they would poison. Me and the city that wraps me in its leather coat and spikes, tragic ink and garble, vodka after vodka after shot after shot. My slurred proclamations of love where love doesn't go far but lays dead as a clever rodent. In the alleyways, I kick my boots against a crumbling wall that will always be crumbling but will never fall. The smell of sausages spill from a factory of sausages assuages the memory of a canopy of green and the verge pressing into my waist like the hands of a man eager to take my measure. The heat like a cologne emitted from the skin, like a fear of the wild before entering something and another wilder. My dolls were just that. So I was born in Texas on the panhandle. It's so hot out there, I can't stand it, too hot. But then when I go back, I always feel like I'm home and like I've missed something. So going back into my childhood just a bit. My dolls were just that, dolls. I feel at any moment I might unspool To think of those eight blonde heads, four on either side. To think they might protect me. Those nights, terrors that presaged later terrors, equally dark, would not be stopped by their hard plastic heads, those chewed pink scalps. Why would they save my body, brown as it was, animate, soft? They didn't love me, I loved them. I brushed their hair, and they expected me to. I rubbed their legs between my own, but only I came. They were pretend, but I never pretended. I privileged them and served them tea and cookies when I could sneak them into my bedroom, which my mother insisted I keep clean and crumb-free. I was crumbling, and my dolls could not stop it. They sat straight up on the pillows while I held vanilla wafers to their mouths. Oh, look, I left hair all over the bathroom. Damn. An old woman from Georgia touches my hair. Cotton candy. Touched my hair at the cafe and said that. And I obliged, said, yeah, more cotton than wool then immediately thought of the flaxen hair of my dolls that I washed and cut with my tiny hairdresser fingers while I waited for my breast to grow straight out and my own hair to grow straight down. I'm losing the thread of my recollections, so you probably can't follow me. Yes, rabbit holes. There were so many back there in West Texas and so many Alice's, Alice's everywhere, so popular. One year there was a rabbit infestation in Amarillo But I've told you about that. I didn't tell you how many girls followed those rabbits down, down, down. I am repeating myself. I wanted a rabbit too. A fluffy white one with a pocket watch. There were wild hares, And some were rabid. But I didn't believe that. Tens of thousands of them with their long ears and raggedy bodies. But I was so drawn to them. No one cared what hole I fell down. I looked under the bed every night, so scared, and held my dolls close, squeezing them into my ribs as if they could ward off whatever came for me. And when it did come for me, they were nowhere to be found. This morning, I miss such devotion. I love to read this poem in New England. When I moved to New England from Asheville, I have to tell you, when I was in Asheville, um, I played a little game with my husband and I would count the black people and maybe I'd see seven a week and four of those were tourists okay so I had no idea that moving to New Hampshire and originally I was on the other side of New Hampshire and Vermont that I was moving to the whitest states in the Union how come no one told me so occasionally I miss uh, a particular kind of brown woman from the south This morning I miss such devotion. There is a sister whose voice is gentle as a lullaby, a lulling, even when angered she won't yell. A particular upbringing that eschews the loud, though such a woman can be found embracing those whose voices swell in the streets. Perhaps less saintliness than a vicarious expression of her own rage, frustrations, drawing the brawler, the harsh and violent close the softness embedded in her accent, an oiled woman, pink lipstick on her brown lips, a woman who pulls biscuits on a Saturday from the oven, bathwater woman, sweet liquor and a white cabinet woman. I have found this woman in Tennessee, in Texas, in Alabama, in Mississippi and clung to her, darling and dearest and hush honey on the tongue. Not silence but delicacy, a blue slip in the drawer, A breeze through the oak leaves. Cuss and she won't shush you. She'll laugh and take you inside. Feed you cake, brush out your damp hair, pull you onto her lap and draw the cedar from the wound. The Keening. So my friend, poet David Martinez, he knows me. I have suffered from depression since I was five years old. And he asked me, are you going to write a poem ever where you're not keening? I said, no, someone has to keen, every culture has its crier. That's me. The keening swells the moon and the eyes that look to it and the ears that hear it move over and between every living thing that move through every dead one. When stabbed, if stabbed more than once, a threshold is reached, the point of no return, a horizon that holds no other horizon. The pain keeps, but the blood flows out, winding its way as water so salt it finds its level. The sound of the wound like the sound of the wounds, constant. It can be stood because it is always there, the keening. There is always a mouth that needs, always hands empty, and love fickle and feckless. A dog at the door of an empty house. A man weeps, willing enough to devour or deny what he craves for those he does not. A crow at the tail of a vulture, a vulture coveting something more majestic than itself, a child eaten by its father, the child stewed by its mother for an every ever hungry father, always the bones broken, rebroken, then set madly into the splint, a dirty girl swallowed whole by a man dirtier still, the flowers are always taken for trash, but the trash is always ringed in gold. Get the picture a gloss of beauty dispossessing beauty, a failing of the eye, and a woman who mourns it all, the splinter and the cornea that needles the crier that connects us all by tears. Um, I had a story, it's hard to see it now because I have recently dyed my hair back to its original color, as God intended, and got rid of the white skunk patch that went, okay, badger patch, whatever, that went like this, right? And um, my grandmother's hair was completely white by the time she was 30, 35, and all of her sisters the same. And I had only known before moving to North Carolina brown people with white hair and then i met my friend sebastian right so this is entitled i asked him are we related mm-hmm. <laughs> i thought only my family had it white hair hair growing out and up over pecan brown texan faces not gray not goose down but white as the bloom of a dogwood white as paper is white White as a wall at the asylum, as the newly painted doors of a prison hallway. White as cumulus clouds overhead, seeing everything, knowing everything. So when I moved to the mountains, I thought I was related to damn near everyone. Appalachians with my roots right down to the roots. Their faces were not mine, but I was not fooled. We were kin and kindred, more like than not and my voice softened around them, this extended family just over the crest of the Blue Ridge. I had not known the Ridge before, and where did the Scots and Irish thread their bows, if not on the dark wood of their instruments? And my hair, now whitening into its origins, as much as my face falls into its own place, into its wisdom, its bluffs, and bark." Another attempt. The secret story is the one we'll never know, although we're living it from day to day. Roberto Bolaño. But we do know, at least we know, our own secret story. And if we are brave enough, we might share it. And if the party we share it with is honest, they may admit it. And from their hands held as we walk into the cave or dip our hands into the well or meander up a narrow stairwell into a dark store or a speakeasy. The secret to knowing the secret is to speak, but we too often tell the stories that are of no matter and avoid the one that does. We are bound by the secret story. You'd think by now we'd tell it at least to each other. My final poem this evening, I'm dedicating to Matthew um, Oldsman. Beast and Beauty. It's funny, right before this started, I said to him, does it embarrass you when I read this poem? And then I said, since I've read it like 25 times, I guess it doesn't matter. And I never asked him before. And he said, I'm going to put that online. Okay. Beast in Beauty. He took me like a mother, drew my head toward himself, pulled me onto his lap, wrapped his arms around me, and cooed into my hair, softly as if I was dreaming, and he didn't want to wake me. He sang a song that sounded like birds singing in the sycamore, then tree frogs. I wanted to leave. I stayed where I was. He wore a lovely shirt. His hair was surprisingly kempt. There was half a candle piece and a rug of quarters, tomato soup on the stove. I thought, what a shirt. I prayed my breast would magically spill from the zipper. I wanted to feel my calloused heels on his thighs. I wanted to linger till dawn. His paired nails scratched an itch that had eluded me for years. I cried as if I were slicing onions in his kitchen. He was such a good mother. He held me like a daughter, as if I was just as beautiful as he believed me to be. Thank you.